Mac Power Users, episode 470, From Computing to Sheep Farming with Uji McGuire. Welcome back. I'm Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hello, Stephen. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am uh, excited about today's guest. Me too. I mean, uh, I, I met her on the forums. Well, we've been on the phone a few times, and I'm like, we have got to get this sheep farmer on Mac Power Users. That's that's right. It's going to be a, a fun adventure. I love when people use technology in a context totally different from mine, totally different from things I'm used to. So I'm excited to learn with everybody else today. Welcome to the show, Uji McGuire. Glad to be here. Yeah. So Uji is an active member on the uh, talk.macpowerusers.com on the forums, and uh, she is a been working in technology her whole life, but you know, the uh, life took some turns for her and now she is also a full-time sheep farmer, but she's using all sorts of technology to run her farm, to run her business, uh, and, uh, do all sorts of really cool stuff that, uh, I, as soon as we started talking, I realized that you'd be a great guest on the show. And if you're listening and you're saying, well, I'm not a sheep farmer, why am I listening? Uh, Uji's got a lot of tricks up her sleeve. And I think, uh, no matter what you're doing in your life, you may get a, a few, uh, good ones out of her today. So uh, so thanks for coming in and sharing, Uji. Well, hopefully it'll be a, at least entertaining for people, if not useful. So tell us a bit about yourself. Um, I have a computer science degree originally and ended up going to work for Data General as a systems engineer. And from Data General, I then went to SAI Technology, um, both out in Southern California, the San Diego area. And uh, I grew up on the farm here in the town where we're living now. And when we inherited the farm, we ended up moving back. And that was in 2000. So I was I'd... talking to a, a listener of ours who uh, works at NASA at, um, at MaxDoc last year. And he is a systems engineer on some of the the um, stuff they do at NASA. And, you know, I said, what does that really mean? He says, well, it just basically means everything that connects together, we have to make sure it works. You know, and I, the more I thought about it, I realized that is a, probably the hardest job there. Cause if anything breaks, you're probably at fault. Um, I ended up in the last part of my professional career working at SAIC in effectively a free agent mode where, you know, as a systems engineer, you were basically a, a body for hire and you had to go find your own contracts within the context of the corporation. So it was a very interesting, so I ended up doing all sorts of things because it's like, uh, yeah, you need somebody on this project to go do something. Sure, I can do that. And you either got the contract or not within the corporation, which was very interesting. What platforms were you working on that at that time to, to do the work? A lot in Director, a lot in some other multimedia authoring systems. Um, at the SAIT, they developed rugged mobile military computers. So there was a variety of things that we worked with there. Uh, grids, grid sets. Well, don't say anything that's going to bring people in black helicopters down on you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I won't. No. <laughs> well, it sounds like you, you were you were in deep, though. Yes, very much so. And then from there, you went back home, took over the sheep farm. When was that? Um, my mother passed away in 98, 
And so we took a year to kind of figure out what to do with the farm. Um, we had moved most, she had a very large, what we call a spinner's flock. So it was a whole bunch of different breeds with all different kind of wool because she was a spinner and a weaver. And so you wanted lots of different wool types. Well, I sorted through and took the sheep that I thought I would like, or that were my sheep, the Black Welsh, and also Shetlands. And we moved them out to Southern California while we were trying to figure out what to do with the farm. And ended up that the thing that made the most sense was to move back and live here for a while, but the house had never really been finished. It needed to be refurbished. So we did that and ended up moving back in the fall of 2000. The move was interesting because at that point, the sheep flock was already enrolled in California in a federal program. And uh, no one had ever moved a flock enrolled in that program from one state to another, and no one knew what to do. And so it took six months before we got permission to move the sheep, and then we had to get them all moved in two weeks. Well, so so you uh, so I'm guessing you didn't move them like you know traditionally by just getting a dog and taking a long walk. Uh no, it was it was like hiring a trailer and double deck loading sheep at like six in the morning and then taking a shower, which I'm sure everybody on the plane appreciated, uh, getting on a plane, flying out, getting picked up, and then trying to, to beat the sheep up to the farm. And in fact, we, my ride and us, you know, we passed the trailer of sheep about five miles away from the farm. It's like, yep, that's our sheep, and got up here, and our contractor was still working on the house, and it's like, okay, everybody, all hands on deck. We've got 100 sheep arriving in about 10 minutes, and we've got to unload them, and there's no pins, so start building fence real fast. The sheep are coming. (laughs) (laughs) Get it. But but the, the the thing that's interesting about your story, UG, is that you took that career of working in technology with you to the farm, and and we're going to get into this deeper on the show. But like you have put together your own application, you built your own flock management application. Um, you're actively using your Apple technology to run your farm, but also work with other uh, people in your industry. And it's just super interesting to me the way in these years you have you've grown this up to really a, a pretty high tech business. Yeah, it can be. I mean, the flock management lamb tracker is open source, so it's not a business per se. Lots of reasons we made it open source. I didn't want to be stuck doing technical support. So, sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. It started out as a result of the research we were doing with the USDA and it just became clear that my previous system of tracking information was completely inadequate. So so before the Tesor technology showed up in this realm, I mean, how were people keeping up with such a large number of animals? Large flocks typically don't. The big flocks, the, you know, 5,000 U or more flocks don't really care about individual animals. The only people that care about Individual animals are people doing research, rare breeds, small flocks, you know, what we call hobby flocks, because those, you know, the individual sheep. And there's a lot of software out there that does sort of 
basic flock management, tracking, you know, I gave somebody a vaccine or something, but there wasn't really anything out there that was flexible enough to incorporate the data that we were gathering as part of the research we were doing, because in any given year, we didn't exactly know what we were going to be doing or what we'd need to collect, because if we knew how to do it, it wouldn't be research and it wouldn't be worth doing. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's, and I we've got a segment on this later, so we'll get into it deeper, but it's like building a relational database as you go and you're not sure what you're starting with. Yeah. And in fact, Lamb Tracker is a relational database. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's then, the part on it that's really going is the database structure. The rest of it, not so much. But So at what point in your journey did you start buying stuff with little Apple logos on it? Well, I had an original Mac, the very first one. I had an Apple II that I had done programming on. Um, that one I didn't own, but I had access to it. So um, I've had Macs for quite a while. Yeah, that, you're, so you're there at the beginning. Pretty much, yeah. And what is your Mac hardware these days? Or what's your Apple hardware? Um, So right now I've got a 2013 iMac, which is my main computer. I have a 2011 MacBook Air 13-inch, which is Lamb Tracker Development Central. Um, I have a iPad Air 5th generation that I use for reading and some stuff and then you know my phone's an iphone 8 the uh the mid 2011 still doing okay yeah actually it's it's in good shape uh, in fact i was working simultaneously with on lamb tracker this morning and i had lamb tracker development up on the laptop and i had lamb tracker live code up on you know the live database up on my main machine and i was because i'm doing a database read redesign. So I had to look at what I have been using and then see what I needed to change. Yeah, we just lost our 2011 iMac in our house. Uh, don't don't say that. I need this one to keep going for a while. <laughs> there's a funny thread in the forum, by the way. I, I, I put that up and there's some people listening to the show that have got some really old Macs in daily use. So it's, it sounds like the two machine setup, you can you're using them both at the same time in development. Have you, have you always been a, a sort of a two Mac user or is that a, a more recent development? That's a more recent development. Um, it's really hard to drag my iMac out to the side of the sheep corral <laughs> to, de- to do live debugging, which I have done. So I needed a portable machine and mm-hmm. ended up my stepdad upgraded his. And so he's like, well, I've got this Mac Air that I'm not using. I'm like, I need it. Yeah, as opposed to building some sort of like, I can just see in my mind like a big like cart with the iMac on it and like a big battery so you can use it outside. Like that's a terrible idea. It's it, that wouldn't be so bad. It would. It's the issue of the dust and what sheep can do to high tech equipment. <laughs> I'd imagine they're not they're not gentle on it when they come in contact with it. No, and I bet they're really terrible typists too. <laughs> um. Yeah, and when you have a touch screen, which Lamb Tracker is, I've had the use sometimes hit buttons that I didn't want them to. Have they ever accidentally activated Siri? I just want to know. No, not to my knowledge. <laughs> that, 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 that would be bad. <laughs> Very bad. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> we made it 13 minutes into this recording. I was really hoping we could go the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I knew that was a bad idea as I said it. <laughs> 
so you've got your your iMac and your MacBook Air, but I would imagine that these sort of projects and some of the other stuff you're doing generates uh, a fair amount of data. So how are you managing uh, files between these two machines? That's actually a really cool thing. Our uh, local electric service is a rural co-op, and a while back they decided they needed to do load balancing real-time load balancing, and that the best way to do that was to install fiber optics to every single installation, you know, every meter in the co-op. And then somebody else got the brilliant idea that, you know, we can run several fibers and it's not going to cost us any more because you buy fibers in bundles. And so we now have uh, fiber optic to every electric meter. And so we have high-speed internet to the house, practically to the barn. Um, we're paying for the low-end version, which is a symmetrical 100 megabit speed up and down for under 50 bucks a month. And if we need it, we can get a one gigabyte link up and down, symmetrical, which is the big key. It hurts my heart. I'm I'm stuck with like Comcast Business Class. Fiber is not available on my literally on my side of the street. The other side of the street has it, gigabit fiber. My side doesn't, and so I just sometimes I think about going to my neighbor and like, could I just run Ethernet from like your house to my studio? But I've had no such luck so far. It, you know, we actually have Ethernet cable run to our barn, you know? <laughs> but uh, we've been using. Wi-Fi, you know, we've got a couple of, well, a bunch of Wi-Fi access points set up. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Stephen, in all fairness, I mean, Uji's running a sheep farm and you just have a podcast <laughs> network. I mean, it, it it does. I mean, it is an interesting topic. That's, that's actually one of the first things I thought of when uh, we were talking about this episode was like sort of a, a, the state of Internet access, you know, in in smaller communities. And it's awesome that y'all have that co-op and it can bring that stuff in. But, you know, a lot of people uh, in a lot of the U.S. even, you know, are, st are stuck with DSL or worse or something like satellite internet where providers just haven't rolled it out. So that's, that's exciting to hear that, that you've got such great connectivity. And if you're in a rural environment, access to the internet is so critical. It's what allows the children who are raised here to stay in the valley, you know, my mom used to say that for a long time, the best crop the valley produced was children, and they all went away because there weren't jobs here. And what we're seeing is that now that we're starting to get the high-speed internet, we're getting young families moving in, we're getting um, what I call digital nomads moving in, because it's a great place to live, it's got great quality of life, and you can still do your work. No, that makes total sense. I mean, I, I think about that. I fantasize about that, except for the, the law practice. You know, maybe someday when I'm old and gray, I'll just go somewhere like that and I can do all the Max Barkey stuff anywhere. And that's that, that's kind of nice. But it's also interesting to me uh, talking to listeners and, and just people about technology. It seems like in the rural areas, it's one or the other. It's either terrible Internet or it's great Internet. But it's never like in the middle of the road. It, it's one or the other. Yeah, I think that kind of depends on your local politics and the the way the topography. You know, for quite a while there was a, there is still a wireless internet service here in our valley. In fact, we have a tower site on the farm for the for the wireless internet provider, and that provided very good internet 
as rural areas go. But our topography made it you know, difficult. You had to have a lot of tower sites, a lot of radios to make the whole system work. So a lot of us listening are, you know, in our homes or apartments where, you know, managing Wi-Fi is not as difficult as it would be for you. I mean, we've got a smaller amount of square feet to cover in Internet. The challenges we face is that we have neighbors that are doing the same thing. What's it like setting up a, a wireless um, inter- a, or just a wireless system or a Wi-Fi Internet access on a farm? I mean, I would imagine there's actually some challenges involved with that. It's basically hardware, so my husband does it. Oh, you guys have split the work there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. He's he's a retired computer hardware designer, so... I mean, you guys are just uniquely qualified to make this work, Uchi. <laughs> it de- definitely does work, but we also know it. It's like uh, the only software he touches is the, the low-end code that, you know, the device driver code. And... Uh, he gets all that working, and then I work on the rest of it. And so when it comes to the hardware network, I'm not in charge of that. But I'm just looking <laughs> at my Wi-Fi options right now, and we've got eight different Wi-Fi access points up and running right now. I know we've we've got at least three of them are on the uh, radio system, so the wireless ISP. Four, five are on our fiber optic ISP, you know, that's where they're going to. But beyond mm-hmm. that, sure. you got me. <laughs> uh, I do like the idea of teamwork when it comes to that sort of stuff. You know, I think a lot of us are the maybe like the only nerdy person in our household. So 100% of it falls to, to you know, us and a lot of our listeners. But I like I like when when a family can can tackle it as a as a team. I think that's that's pretty great. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what Daisy would do if I said, hey, you know, I need you to, to manage the Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would probably not go over very well. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Clean My Mac X from our friends at MacPaw. Clean My Mac X can speed up your macOS performance with maintenance scripts. It can remove temporary items and optimize system libraries so your Mac runs more smoothly and just feels better to use. On average, Clean My Mac removes up to 74 gigs of junk on a typical Mac. That could be anything from system junk to pieces of old applications or outdated and broken items and more. Basically, a lot of the stuff that you don't need anymore, and that could be slowing down your Mac. I'm a fan of this application, and I've used it for years. The most recent version, Clean My Mac X, brings even more to the table. It searches through the system junk, the photo stuff you don't need anymore, mail attachments, junk you've got in the iTunes library. And it even looks for malware. In addition to helping you save space and get rid of unwanted software, it's got optimization and maintenance scripts it can run, and it can even help you properly uninstall applications on your Mac. I run this application on my Mac about once a month, and every time it seems to find multiple gigabytes of stuff that I've collected. I love that it optimizes performance. I love that it runs those maintenance scripts. And it just feels like the right way to take proper care of my Mac. So why don't you make your Mac good as new with Clean My Mac X? It's time to show your Mac a bit of love. Head over to macpaw.com slash MPU now. That's macpaw.com slash MPU to make your Mac feel as good as new and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Okay, so we talked some about your your early days doing computer science, um, working in the field and then and then making the transition to to being on the farm. Uh I'd like to talk a little bit about 
uh, where those two things, uh, kind of where those two things meet, maybe. So talk, in, in our prep for this, you're talking <laughs> uh, about some things that I don't think I, I fully understand. But uh, what are you using, like Lamb Tracker and this other software? Like, what are the actual like outcomes of, of using this tech? The biggest outcome is less time spent dealing with flock management. I use Lamb Tracker to collect data on all the sheep, their bloodlines, their performance data, keep track of lambs, keep track of ear tags. Um, there's keep track of disposition. That's a key evaluation factor in our farm. Those are the kinds of things that we're currently using it for. Where we're headed with Lamb Tracker is, and it's how I got started in computer science, there's a, a technique where you take phenotypic data, like weights, measurements, you know, actual real things you can measure that are not subjective. They are objective measurements. And you solve simultaneous linear equations to combined with the in the heritability and the relationships between those traits, and you can get estimates of how a particular animal is going to perform as a breeding animal. And that early code was how I got into computer programming because it was not, you know, you can't do those things by hand particularly well. And it was a big breakthrough that you could actually, that you know, there was this device that you could program that could produce these. At that point in time, they were estimated uh, progeny differences. And the research on that has moved up. And now the latest one is a BLUP, Best Linear Unbiased Predictions. And what you get is EBVs, which is estimated breeding values. The concept's the same. The equations are different. You know, that's kind of now I'm back at what I started in computers and that I'm in the process of trying to integrate some blood system code into Lamb Tracker. So you were doing this when you were on the farm before you headed to San Diego. Yeah, I was doing that in college. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so it is kind of a full circle for you coming back to the area that you first started uh, working on with computers. Right. Right, and and then Lamb Tracker is your open source app that that collects data, and, and we're, I want to talk about that too, uh, and then runs these calculations to help to help lamb farmers or sheep farmers uh, get a better idea of, of the value of their specific sheep and their flock. That's where it's headed um, right now. A lot of times, I'm using it to fulfill legal requirements for tracking, either for the federal government or the state government. Um, a lot of people don't realize that many farming entities have a lot of reporting requirements. And we're also in what they call an export qualified flock, which means I can export live sheep to Canada. That took seven years of collecting data and information to get the qualification. And then I have to be the flock and I are, we're all inspected, you know, my data is inspected, the flock's inspected every year to maintain it. So there's a lot of stuff that you have to keep that it just, you know, I was using spreadsheets and, or, you know, so I called them the spreadsheets and that just became <laughs> impossible. Sure. So, the, and that's where you get to the relational database section of, of what Lamb Tracker does. Right. 
Well, now what kind of hardware were you running this stuff on back in college? I mean, to it sounds to me like a fairly complex bit of programming. And this was, I don't know, I think it was, you said it was in the 80s that you were doing As, that? Yeah, late 70s, early 80s. So the mainframe at school was a CDC cyber running network operating system. I don't remember which one. And the coding was all done with punch cards. Stephen, you got one of those in your uh, in your museum? <laughs> I don't think my museum's big enough for one of those. <laughs> I did do some coding on deck PDP 11s. And and now it's on a 2011 MacBook Air. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. And and in point of fact, if I could ever figure out how to get it adapted to iOS, my phone has more compute power than the computers that we were running on. Well, I mean, it's it's just crazy how fast that stuff advanced. So, and so you started developing Lamb Tracker when you came back to the farm, um, and you said earlier you open sourced it. I, I, there's some listeners that are not in development, and that that's going to be a, a new term for them. Could you explain what that means a little bit? Open source is basically you're putting the source code out available to the public, sometimes with restrictions or licenses, and you know, the general philosophy is that here's this code that does this cool thing. And if you want to help make it better, you can work on it as well. So, and you can take it and you can adapt the code for your purposes. And I'm not going to be charging you a, a monthly subscription fee or in general. I mean, there are ways that you can do open source and still get paid for it. But, you know, the general rule is it's like, hey, this is cool stuff and it'll work better if more people can take a look at it and play with it and poke at it and use it. And so we made it open source. And what's been the investment from the community? Have you seen other farmers using the software? The Venn diagram of SQLite programmers and sheep farmers is a very small subset of folks. <laughs> small sliver. <laughs> and so it has not had the uptake that I would like. Part of that is because there's no desktop app. You know, you you run yeah. the database, you basically pull it into something and you've got to do your own SQLite tools to do your reports. And, you know, it's just, yeah, I can do it and it works and you know, so it's working for me, and that's another you know long-term goal is to really get a desktop app of some sort. Um, we are also a uh, no Microsoft house, so there's no Windows machines here anywhere. It's either all Mac or Linux, and most people run on Windows computers, and I have absolutely zero knowledge on how to do anything for those machines and no real desire to learn. So that's kind of limited development of a desktop app for Lamb Tracker. But the development work you're doing on your MacBook, is that... Is Terminal and, you know, Android yeah. Studio for the code development. And then, you know, the database is an SQLite file and I'll pull it into, uh, you know, Valentina Studio or DB Browser or some of these other tools that we have. So uh, you've talked about the development work, but you're also doing data collection, and you're doing that with mobile, but not Apple Mobile, right? That's correct. So how are you doing that? So the Lamb Tracker Mobile 
originally started as a kid's Android-based handheld called a Nabby Junior because it was fairly cheap at the time. It was like 130 140 bucks. It was moderately rugged because kids can drop things. So it was probably going to survive if I dropped it outside. Uh, and that worked well for a while. It had a, an acceptable screen size. And then what we've moved to now is we run... Lamb Tracker on Kindle Fire computers with a nice little case with kind of a handle on it, and that's what we carry around. I mean, I, I carry it out when we're lambing. We lamb outside in the field, and I have, you know, my EID reader and my bag of tools that I might need and ear tags and a scale and the little Kindle, the Kindle Fire. Well, and we and well, collect data real time. And the reader, I mean, so I don't know what you're talking about. EID reader? What's that? So EID is electronic EID. identification. Okay, gotcha. And it's like we a barcode each, something? Or? Uh, it's a barcode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course it is. I couldn't resist. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it's actually not. It's, it's actually an ear tag. So you put an ear tag in the sheep, you know, as, as we like to tell the lambs when they're getting their ear tags, come on, body piercing, it's all the latest thing, yeah. it, it'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically an earring for the sheep sure. that has a little electronic chip in it, and then you read it with a reader, that gets the number, the lamb tracker program, I use that number to look up in my database about the sheep, if it's one we've already got, or if it's a new lamb, we're adding you know, that number goes with the lamb that this you produced that I just got the weight on kind of thing. And then the data is collected in that device. Uh, is it shared or is it is that device where the data is stored? The device is where the data is stored until you get back to the house, to the main computer. Yeah. I plug it in and then just use terminal and copy the SQLite file off the Kindle Fire and put it on the computer, and from there I can put it to my main machine or you know any machine I want. Do backups, whatever I need to do with it. Nice. So, so that tag really is the like the unique identifier to say you know this sheep is actually this sheep. You can look it up in the database, but is the database is that holding all the information uh, about the flock, or are you still using sort of these other more manual systems as well for certain aspects of things? I try to use the electronic tags to locate sheep as much as possible, but Lamb Tracker doesn't require it. So, you know, like some of the sheep I know, all the sheep have names, and I know many of the sheep by name. And so I can look up and say, you know, maybe I need to take a note, Sterling's lame on his left front foot, and I want to put a note about that so that next time I'm out there, I can check him. And... So I can look up sheep by name. I can add notes in the field. Um, sometimes I try to add notes to my phone using Siri, which has been singularly unsuccessful, and then transcribe them into the database. But by and large, it you know we run with the EID just because it's faster. There's less. It's it's you either get it or you don't. Either you get a good read and you've got a good number or it doesn't work at all. So there's no, is that a six or a nine? Like when you're dealing with a visual tag. Because it's actually the, I guess the reader is actually reading the, the data on the tag itself. So it doesn't matter if it's dirty or you misread it. It's a, it's an actual like 
digital identifier. Correct. Gotcha. The only the only failures we've had is Rams have managed to smash the chips on mm. a couple of ear tags. That's I guess that's going to happen sometimes, right? You know. Yeah, and that's <laughs> so we always put two ear tags in. One's electronic, and one's just a visual tag, and it's the last four digits of their electronic ID. And you know, usually we run sheep through and are looking at them often enough that it's like, oh, so and so is missing a tag. Well. We'll just go replace the tag. And Lamb Tracker keeps track. So I, if I find a tag loose in the farm, you know, walking through the pasture, oh, there's an ear tag on the ground. Well, whose was it? I can look up and say, oh, yeah, that sheep lost that tag two months ago. And we already replaced it. Or, nope, I think that tag's still on a sheep. We better find her and put a new gotcha. tag in. Okay. Do, do you have to use any like geolocation stuff with the sheep at this point? Like, like if they get away, do you, does Lamb Tracker address that? It does not. The range flocks have asked for that, but tags that would allow you to find the sheep using geolocation stuff are very expensive. You know, it's why yeah. when they're when they're tracking wild animals for research, they wear collars. They're big. They're expensive. They don't last long. Uh, it'd be really interesting, but it's not anything that's going to be useful except for as a research project. Well, I think it's fascinating that you've you've put all this together. Um, now, when you decided to do the mobile, you decided to go Android instead of Apple. What was the reason for that? EID tag readers use Bluetooth sure. to get the data. The Apple has closed down Bluetooth. If you want to attach a third-party Bluetooth device to an Apple device, you have to go get Apple's approval. You have to have fully vetted your device, complete with FCC approval, before you even ask for Apple's approval, and there's no guarantee you'll get it. That just made it impossibly expensive. I mean, because you'd have to go for FCC approval of your reader first, and that's really not going to be, you know, not an option for a small farm. Yeah, it's definitely one of those situations where the ecosystem Apple's developed has made it really impossible to use their hardware. Yeah. And, you know, the the reader board that we buy for the, the reader hardware that my husband designed comes from Australia. The Bluetooth radio comes from China. You go to a plumbing store, you get the plumbing parts to make a little case. You get a little battery connector thingy, a little speaker, and a beeper because you need to know that the device read a tag. And that was an addition. That was our Rev2 reader. So you can build the whole thing for under 100 bucks. And a normal, at the time we started this, a normal tag, the reader itself would be somewhere around 750 to 1500 bucks. Oh, wow. So, um, and the, the handheld computers that, the you know, the reader, all it does is read the tag. I mean, it doesn't do anything. The computer that you need that actually does something with that data, those are 1500 and up. So by putting the hardware together yourselves, having the software using the Kindle Fires, you've brought your, at least your overhead in this area, way, way down. Yeah. Made it possible. It, it was yeah. impossible before. 
And it's better than the stuff you can buy. Well, from my point of view, it is. <laughs> well, it is It is pretty nice, though. Uh, so Uchi is the software person, and her husband is a hardware person. And he's not just setting up the Wi-Fi network. He's actually assembling hardware, buying parts. <laughs> I love it. And uh, it's, 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 it's a great story. Yeah, we actually, he just got a uh, flow oven so that he can do soldering of boards with very, very tiny little parts that he places under a microscope mm-hmm. kind of thing and it that you can't solder by hand at all. It, it, I just want to come hang out in his workshop. Like, <laughs> I was just thinking that. I'm like, I think I just want to go over to Uji's house and just work on some code and build something. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're open for farm tours in the summer. Come on. We got a guest house. <laughs> we got, we'll do a live show from the guest house. You got plenty of internet. We can do we can stream a live show. You could. <laughs> it, it sounds like you've you've really, as as time has gone on, as technology has allowed you to, y'all have built your own solutions to meet the problems you have from tracking the the flock and what they're doing and all these measurements about their performance. Uh, but something you've mentioned uh, a couple of times I want to get into is the uh, the research side of it and and kind of explain what you're doing there and, and if that's changed over time. We started back in like 2005, the USDA's National Animal Germplasm Program, which is the national gene bank for animal species in the U.S., is responsible for maintaining frozen stores of germplasm, primarily frozen semen, of all the major domestic species and then a bunch of others that they also have to deal with. And they need samples from rare breeds because genetic diversity in our domestic crops, whether it's animal crops or plant crops, is an important thing to maintain. And so this is the group that deals with the animal side. There's another whole group that deals with the plant side. And they're headquartered in Fort Collins, Colorado. So we had, at the time, the most genetically diverse flock of black Welsh mountain sheep in North America. So it was a good place where they could come out and collect semen samples. They were in the process of developing some techniques for collecting those samples and freezing them that were different than sort of the industry standard. So that was the initial research of how can we get this done with the least stress on the sheep and the shepherd and still have good semen quality at the end of the line, which is once you've thought it out and you're getting ready to put it in a ewe and produce a lamb. The other thing then was that the use of that in sheep at that point was all surgical. It's a very expensive process. It's extremely stressful on the sheep. It's probably equally as stressful on the shepherds. We have done it in our flock twice. And the USDA researcher that we were working with wanted to see if there was a way to develop a non-invasive, basically a non-surgical procedure for artificial insemination of sheep. And all the research had said that you couldn't do it for various anatomy reasons. And he wasn't sure about that. So we were one of the few flocks that will actually slaughter adult sheep for meat. Most of them, they get slaughtered and they go into, you know, your lamb and rice dog food. 
but we slaughtered them in for human food, which meant that it was under a totally different inspection structure. And so we actually would go on the kill floor and dissect out sheep reproductive tracts and ship them FedEx overnight. And he proved that the anatomy that everybody had thought was the way it was, was not accurate because all the research had been done on lambs that had never had a lamb before and it changes. So um, once we figured out that there wasn't an anatomic problem, then it became a hormone synchronization problem and timing of insemination problem. And so we worked with them for over 13 years basically being the research flock that was a fairly inexpensive flock to get to from travel standpoints and willing to keep excruciating detail on everything that got done to a sheep down to, you know, the minute that you did a particular treatment. Because when you're dealing with this kind of basic research on biology and hormones, as little as 15 minutes can make a difference in your success rate. And, and were you tracking all of that through Lamb Tracker or was that a separate? I started tracking it on spreadsheets and that's why I met, built Lamb Tracker because it became impossible. So you must have a tremendous amount of data classes in Lamb Tracker. Yeah, there's right now about 80 different tables. Hey, I want to talk about some of the stuff you do just to, you know, running the farm, some of the more kind of meat and potatoes computing, because uh, I know you're very deliberate about all this stuff. But before we do, let's take a, a minute to talk about our next sponsor. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by our friends at Luna Display. They're the makers of the only hardware solution that turns your iPad into a wireless display for your Mac. This means you'll have a second display that's super portable with basically zero lag and gorgeous image quality. Look, I'm a hardware guy. I collect old Macs. I love the way things are put together. And the Loon Display adapter just plugs into your computer via USB or main display port. It's super well made. It's tiny and the fit and finish is great. I appreciate that attention to detail and Loon Display just knocks it out of the park. Setting up extra screens can be fiddly, but Loon Display couldn't be easier. You just plug in that little piece of hardware I told you about into your Mac and you're good to go. Plus, everything works over Wi-Fi, but if you're busy and you're traveling with no Wi-Fi, no worries, you can connect via USB directly. It's simple to set up and you'll love that extra screen real estate. And Luna Display is really a complete extension of your Mac. It supports external keyboards as well as the Apple Pencil and touch interactions on the iPad. It basically turns your Mac into a touchscreen device. And with the all-new Liquid Video Engine bringing significantly reduced latency, Luna Display has a faster screen refresh rate than ever. Listeners and Mac power users can get an exclusive 10% off Luna Display. Just go to lunadisplay.com and enter the promo code POWER at checkout. That's lunadisplay.com and promo code POWER at checkout. Go check it out. Upgrade your setup. You're going to love it. lunadisplay.com, promo code POWER, and get 10% off. Our thanks to Luna Display for their support of this show and Relay FM. So I would imagine when you're not uh, out in the farm or writing software or doing sort of the, the hands-on stuff we've talked about, there's a fair amount of other type of work to do from uh, maybe administration to working with the governments you have to work with, with all this stuff. So what are some of the, the tools sort of outside of what we've spoken about already that you're using day to day? 
Email for me is the standard Apple Mail client. My email started out as POP accounts. I've never changed it, so everything is pulled off of the servers. My task manager. Wow, wait, wait a second. You're you're on POP still? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I I don't know many people. So, gang, if you're not familiar, I mean, POP is the original kind of mail protocol or the first big one, and traditionally. Um, your email is on the server. Then with a the pop account, it pulls the email off of the server and puts it on your computer. Your computer becomes the source of truth in essence. And once we started getting multiple computers that, that didn't work anymore because you would have different versions of it on different computers. But, um, but Uchi, tell, tell the gang how you deal with email on your mobile device. Cause I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't. <laughs> See how I did that? That sounds great. <laughs> no, I I decided that I was going to segregate tasks to the hardware where I was best able to deal with it. And I can't deal with email on any of the mobile devices. I do have mail on my phone and on my iPad. And, you know, in an emergency, I can send a quick Gmail to somebody. But by and large, if I need to deal with email, I need my other tools. And so... You know, email is an asynchronous communications method. So why do I need to be on call to handle email all the time? And once you've made that change, sticking with POP is easy because then you're forced to be dealing with it at a device. In some respects, using POP in that in that way is an advantage because with a POP email account, I'd imagine on it's your, was it your iMac that's your email device? Correct. So it, it pulls all the email off the server. And then if you're out in the world and you decide you need to send an email to someone and you open your email app because there's nothing on the server, you're not going to get distracted by all the email. Uh, that you see on your device is probably just going to be kind of an email generation application, like on your iPhone or your iPad. That's all I've ever used it for, is if I have to send an email. I don't read email on a mobile device. It just, you know, it's it, it makes sense, but it's, it's shocking to hear it in 2019 because, uh, you know, I just don't know anybody else that's just using POP at this point. In fact, I think it would almost be hard to find pop email servers like like the cable providers you know the isps were kind of legendary for being slow to adopt imap mm -hmm. but even those at this point have pretty much to my knowledge largely all converted over to imap from pop you you do realize that you can still do gmail over a pop account it blows my mind but it's still it's still it's there, still there. Uh, and if you're running if you're running g suite you can turn it off if you want to but it, it is there and you know it, it makes sense for certain types of users, which I think is why they, they keep it there. But, but yeah, it's definitely not the way uh, a lot of people work. But it sounds like your reasoning like totally works for how you want to do things. And uh, I, I respect the heck out of that, honestly. Me too. I mean, and I, and also, a little jealous. <laughs> you're out, you know, working with sheep. You're, are you going to really stop and like check your email? I mean, it was bad enough that the sheep learned that when the phone rang, they could get away with stuff. And I had to, I had to just realize that you don't answer the phone when you're working the sheep, because they learned my ringtones faster than I did, and they knew that if right. a particular ringtone came, it was going to be a call I was going to take, and then they could go do whatever they wanted to. It's like an alarm for chaos, right? Like it's all right. She's not paying attention. Let's go crazy. Right. Jailbreak. <laughs> it's like so. My task management system is OmniFocus and DevonThink. 
All right. How, how do they work together? I use OmniFocus as my current sort of active projects list. And DevonThink is my, you know, someday maybe in the GTD ecosystem. It's my list of all the various ideas. And it's my small length reference system as well. Large length references are just files on, on a machine, but for smaller amounts of stuff, I put it in Dev and Think. And, so, and that is totally portable. That is on every device. Um, the, I sync to our in-house Synology server. So, you know, my OmniFocus sync is to there, not to the OmniFocus sync service. My Dev and sure. Think sync is to there as well. And what made you decide to use those instead of the uh, the more traditional, like the OmniFocus or the iCloud or whatever Devon thing let you use? Um, very anti-cloud. Sure. And you just want to control your own data. Way too much time working in the industry to have any faith or confidence in storing critical data someplace I don't control. Um, the, so there's some folks listening that have never tried that. You know, both of those apps you talk about offer kind of baked in solutions for you. Um, I, I, for example, with OmniFocus, I use the OmniSync service, and I because I don't want to bother with setting up my own sync. How, how difficult was it for you to set those up? I think it took about an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that hard, it, honestly. It was, I mean, it, it was hard the first time only because I really didn't understand what I was trying to do. And my first, you know, my first incarnation of trying to go to the sync server, I was syncing, you know, our, our NAS has several different users and I was syncing to a common area and that just didn't make sense. So once I... Re- reset it and put it in my own private place on the Synology server. Everything worked great. And uh, yeah, and, and Omni Group is a sponsor of the show, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, I guess. But I, I do appreciate it when a software developer gives users that option, because not only you know, like Uji is mistrustful of cloud because of, of her work in the industry. But also sometimes if you're like working medicine and you've got, you know, privacy restrictions or there, there could be a lot of reasons why you're just not able to use those baked in services. And if the apps don't provide you an avenue, then you just can't use the apps. Right. And one of the things I've learned is I've been through several different task managers and, you know, OmniFocus is very complex. It has lots of things you can do. You can set it up very simply, or you can, you know, really go into it. My suggestion for anybody listening, start out with the minimum. But if you're the kind of user who's going to be growing with this for a long time, start out at the top, you know, start out with the best software you can in class. And so for me, from my opinion, that's OmniFocus for task management and DevonThink for sort of referencing yeah, I think those are two good choices. Um, you know, Devin, think we we've had so many listeners that are doing important work come on the show, and I think Devin think is a very common running theme through those people, especially people that like are involved with the research or need lots of reference materials. And uh, with all the work you're doing in research, I imagine Devin think is is really helpful. Yeah, it you know people complain a lot about its user interface, but to my mind, and part of it's because of having worked 
on computers for so long. I can deal with it. It's a whole lot better than a lot of other interfaces. So, <laughs> yeah, and they've become very friendly to iOS in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it, oh yeah, when they first started, it wasn't a great. You know, it was more of a copy of your data or a reference to your data, whereas now you can fully interact with your data on iOS. Right. Um, is, now, have you been using DevonThink both before and after that transition? Yes, I have. You, are you a latecomer? No, okay. I was using it before and after, and it's a lot better now that you can, because that is actually something I do, is I will edit things in DevonThink on my iOS devices. Another thing you were telling me you do with OmniFocus that I thought was interesting is long-term projects. And I think this is something that we've never talked about on this show. Could you explain that a little bit? So farming is tied to the solar cycle. You know, things happen at different times of the year. And a lot of times, particularly when you're trying to sort of rebuild the old farm, which had, you know, fences that were falling down, that's not a project that's going to get done in a month or two months, or three months, or a year, or a couple of years. Projects can take decades. And so OmniFocus provides the tools necessary to, you know, I can activate a project, basically, bring it in. It's a summer project, can be worked on in the summertime. So I bring it in in summer. I work through as much as I can. At the end of of that season, when I do sort of my quarterly review, I can dump it back into DevonThink, and it can sit there for a year or two, and then I can pick it up again when I can do that task again. You know, right now I'm looking out my window and it's snowing, and we've got snow on the ground. I'm not going to be out doing field work right now, but there's tasks that need to be done then. And so I can I can move stuff in and out of OmniFocus and DevonThink pretty regularly. And that allows you to keep your OmniFocus database to a manageable size. Right. And I'm, I'm also a person who likes lots of choice and tolerates long lists on the David Allen Co. Connect forums, which are a paid-for forum. There's Lots and lots. There are also some public ones there, but there's lots of discussion about, you know, long lists versus short lists and people who can't deal with it. And I'm like, you know, I, I like having two, three hundred projects active at once and a bunch of choices, but other people don't. And OmniFocus supports either way of working. Yeah, you know, I've got a lot more comfortable with long lists once I started getting comfortable with the idea of using tags because it allows me to shrink that list down when I need to. Yeah, and see, I'm not really a tagger by nature, so I shrunk it down with contexts. And yeah. I'm still running OmniFocus 2 on my main computer. Still works. Definitely still works. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of people sort of feel overwhelmed by you know programs like this, that you can do it a bunch of different ways. But the truth is that even amongst the three of us, we all work, it sounds like, in, in different ways with an OmniFocus and with other task managers. And these tools are flexible enough for you to be able to do things like, okay, this is not a time for this. I can pull it out or I can or I can just sort of leave it to the side and not deal with it. And I think people sort of feel like they've got to see everything in it all at once, but that's not, that's not true at all. You can build systems within these programs to to make it more manageable in sort of bite-sized chunks. I like that idea a lot. You know, my, right now, my OmniFocus 2 system has 34 different contexts. Yeah. And that's 
That's... About as small as it gets. It'll get larger. I'll put I'll put a context in for a particular barn. You know, we've got two barns on the place. You know, I have a context for the main barn and the red barn. That that makes complete sense. Now, what about calendaring? Um, using the Mac Calendar app had all sorts of issues. There was a lot of help provided to me on the forum when I upgraded my main Mac to High Sierra. Um, trying to look for a piece of wood to knock on, but right now it's been working properly for four days. <laughs> so I think I'm back live with a functional calendar system. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't see that thread. What, what was the problem? It would crash on start, and then I could get it to come up, and then it would crash whenever I moved, copied, duplicated, edited, or added any event in any calendar. That's a problem. It, so, yeah. So in other words, it just didn't work. It just didn't work. <laughs> uh, now, are, are those calendar entries, are they shared to your other devices, or is it just local to the iMac like the email is? No, I share that to my um, iPad and to my phone, but not to the laptop. And is that something that you and your husband or others, like you interact there together uh, with like multiple calendars, or is it sort of one sort of basic calendar for everything? I'm the keeper of the calendar, and I have multiple calendars, but they're not shared. Yeah. So again, that teamwork thing. Yeah. We, we know where the lines are, who has what in their <laughs> in their domain. Right. So other software I use, um, Scrivener, which I got initially because of the NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month. Sure. Which mm-hmm. I do regularly every year. Have you Have you published anything? No. Okay. Well, actually, no, that's not true. The Lamb Tracker Manual started out as a nano, <laughs> okay. a nano uh, rebel novel. <laughs> there you go. That's great. And and it's still out there, you know. And and it's a page turner, I bet. Well, that actually, that's kind of what I started. Is it's like you know, manuals are just so boring, and so the Lamb Tracker Manual, which needs a lot of work right now because I've made a lot of changes, is taking a flock of sheep through the year and what you do with them and then how you use the lamb tracker to handle each of those items. Sure. So it does sort of try, it try I tried to make it read like a novel. It's the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> sheep happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So I use LibreOffice is my office toolkit. Uh, we don't have any Microsoft software on any computers, so I've been using that for years. Now, you, you've said that a couple times. I, I get the impression that you're not a fan of Microsoft. <laughs> okay. Um, and then um, and then any other uh, apps you use frequently? Lightroom is probably the next most frequent one. That's for the big image cataloging stuff. And yeah. I yeah. don't do very much in the way of mind maps, so Scapple is the one I use for mind mapping because for my needs, it's overkill. I mean, I, I well, also just don't it's think, made by the same. think that way. You know, I, some people think in mind maps and some people don't, I don't. So. Yeah. And also, so Scapple for, for the gang that's never heard of it before. It's made by the same developer as um, Scrivener. And so it works particularly well for uh, writing tools and it works really hand in hand with um Scrivener so well. So if you're writing in Scrivener, you should definitely check out Scapple. Um S C A P P L E. We'll put a link in the show notes. 
another one that's related is if you're doing anything in your writing where you need to track, need to do things by time. So if it's a novel, you might be wanting to track a character arc. Eon Timeline also works really well with Scrivener. And I do use that. It's just not a, I don't use it that often. Um, What about just general small business tools? Financial management is in Banktivity. Um, IGG Soft is, I think, who does it. And I think that that's the one that used to be called iBank. Yeah, used to be called iBank. Yeah, been around a long time. It's uh, functional. It's not great. You got to tweak it. But I don't want to go to the hassle of trying to to do any more than it does and and it gets the job done well enough so i can tell you that in nearly 500 episodes of mac power users we've never had a single guest that has been super excited about their financial management software nope (laughs) it's not something people get uh enthusiastic about for some some reason (laughs) i i don't even i think it's more than that i think it's just there's never been an app that really got people going. Although, what's the one about the envelopes? I forget the name of it. Um, you need a budget. Y-N-A-B. Yes. Y-N-A-B. Yeah, that, that's the only one. But but just like in terms of just tr- you know tracking your money, I don't think anybody's made an app that's inspired users very much. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast. To learn more about Text Expander and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Copy and paste is an inefficient way to keep track of things you type over and over again. Text Expander makes you more productive by taking care of all those words and phrases for you. Text Expander works in all of your apps, so you can use it everywhere, like Microsoft Word, Excel, Adobe Illustrator, iWork, whatever application you're using that you type in, Text Expander can work. All your snippets are everywhere with Text Expander. Text Expander updates new and edited snippets between your Mac, iPhone, iPad, and Windows PC instantly. So spend less time typing and more time doing what you really want. Free snippet groups for job recruiters, freelancers, airport codes, brand names, and more are available at the Text Expander website. I've also got a bunch available over at MaxSparky.com at MaxSparky.com slash TE snippets. Also, you don't have to work alone. Text Expander for Teams lets you manage and share snippets with your coworkers or the entire company. Text Expander is so much more powerful than the typical text replacement tools. With it, you can do things like add Apple Script. Just last week at MaxSparky.com, I did a post with an Apple Script that uses Text Expander to create links to emails. But you don't even have to go that deep. Anytime you find yourself typing the same thing repeatedly or filling out forms that are tedious, you can use Text Expander to do the work for you. I use this tool every day, and I think you should give it a try. So head over to TextExpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users, and you'll get 20% off your first year. Thank you, Text Expander, for making such a great app and all of your support of the Mac Power Users. Uchi, one of the things you do, and we haven't talked about it yet on today's show, is uh, is you work with the historical society in your area, and you spend a bunch of time taking uh, historical photos and digitizing them. And uh, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So our North Fork Historic Society is a very small, tiny organization. We have very limited resources. Um, we have two buildings, two museums, and a 
really extensive collection of really cool photog- photographs and scrapbooks and you know material about this area. And so the two main projects that I'm currently kind of working on, first one is we have about 1,500 glass plate negatives that were made in the early 1900s by a photographer named W.S. Edwards. And uh, he was the photographer for the town. And, you know, he did, so there's just lots of sort of pictures of the fruit picking crews and things like that. And so that's one set of stuff that I'm working on digitizing. The other set of things that's going to be mine to tackle next is our valley has a lot of mesas. You know, there's we live on Garvin Mesa, there's Pitkin Mesa, there's Lamborn Mesa, there's all these different mesas. And they all had ladies clubs on each mesa. So there would be, you know, the Lamborn Mesa neighborly neighbors. That one's actually still in existence. There was the Pitkin Mesa Ladies Club and they did scrapbooks. And so we have all these, we have hundreds of them, of these scrapbooks that that have been given to the Historical Society. And they're on this, you know, acid paper, they're crumpling, they have old photographs that are dying and going away. And so, you know, that's going to be another project is to try to digitize those as they exist because they're vanishing. Then there's thousands of negatives, but I haven't even tackled most of those of, you know, film negatives. Well, we um, we talk a lot on the show about document scanning, but we don't talk about um, converting old photographs to digital images very often. Uh, what what are the workflows you're using? I mean, like glass plate negatives. I mean, how are you how are you getting this stuff into a digital form? So my glass plate negative workflow is first off, um, they're five by seven glass plates. We built a little cardboard-based carrier that you put them on that fits on the flatbed scanner. I'm using a fairly old scanner. It's an Epson Perfection 4870 photo. Uh, For the glass plate negatives, I run it on the older iMac, not my main one, but one that's over in another building. And it, Epson software works fine for that. You, you clean you clean them very carefully. I was trained in how you clean them from an archive standpoint. Put them on, scan them. It takes about 20 minutes to scan one. And then I get the file. I have to do a little bit of manipulation in Photoshop with it about flipping it and rotating it because of the way you have to scan the, the glass plates. And then I import those into Lightroom. The things that are currently being worked on on that right now is I'm looking at actually doing a direct into Lightroom scanning, or at least bringing the master scan images in and doing my manipulations in Lightroom because it's non-destructive. It would be better from an archive standpoint to not be doing that in Photoshop. And I was thinking, you know, because it's a fairly standard set of alterations, you know, flipping, I'm guessing you're flipping the negative color and you're probably flipping on the vertical axis. Um, it Actually, the, the way the emulsion is on and the way the scan re, uh, 
focusing is. You have to scan them reversed. So you have to flip them, reverse them. And then rotate them. Okay. But if you say it's in a, if wow. you say it's a black and white negative, you know the scanning software already deals with turning it into a, a black and white positive. So you don't have to do that. But you mm-hmm. just got to flip it because of you. You don't want to scan through the glass. You want to scan the emulsion. Sure. But the scanners assume that the emulsion is on the uh, is the other way. But I would think that um, Lightroom would have automation tools so you could automate a lot of those initial steps. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm going to be looking at. Right now, I've got my scanner over here in the main house. Um, The glass plate negatives are stored in another building on the farm. And so I haven't been doing any of the negative scanning of glass plates because I'm scanning my family archive of negatives and eventually photos. And a lot of those are two and a quarter by two and a quarter inch negatives. And again, I'm doing it on a flatbed scanner, the same scanner, but for that task, I'm using the ViewScan software. And why do you do that? Because on both Sierra and High Sierra, the Epson software, the scanner is not supported particularly well. You can run it, but a task that takes me 15 minutes to scan with ViewScan is an hour to scan with the Epson software running on this machine. Yeah, ViewScan is is great for supporting uh, older scanners, but it also has a lot of workflow stuff basically built into it where you would have to do that stuff after the fact. Because, you know, image capture, like, it's fine, but it's it's pretty basic. But ViewScan is really like a professional-level tool. I remember in art school, that's what we had like in the graphic design labs, because you could do so much just in the scanner software itself and not have to deal with it later. Right. And the the one thing the view scan does not handle well is the carriers that are holding the negatives. View scan software has made assumptions about what order individual frames are going to be if you want to scan multiple frames in one pass, and you cannot change it. And so you end up getting things in the wrong order. And so it makes, you have to go back and change the file names to make them fit. So uh, my scanning procedure on that is I learned I scan, I, I can hold six of these two and a quarter by two and a quarter inch negatives at a time. And I scan them with file names starting at one zero. So I'll get, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And then the next batch, because these two and a quarter inch negatives are typically from a film that had 12 images per roll. So then the next batch, I start at 20. So while the next batch is scanning, I can go back and rename the first ones properly. And this is obviously something you want to do on a flatbed scanner. You know, you need a stable image to do it. Uh, What resolution are you doing the scans at? 2400. And the reason for that is even though most of the scanners advertise a 9600 DPI resolution, if you actually measure it with a U.S. Air Force target slide for scanning resolution, which you can buy, they're about 100 bucks to buy a slide, it turns out that none of them do much more than about 24 to 2600. I'm doing it at the best I can actually get. And it does get, with those higher resolutions, it can really slow and gunk up the whole system. Yeah. 
my take on scanning is I want to do archival scanning. So I want to do scan once and then never have to touch that negative again or that slide again. And 2400 is marginal for archive quality for 35 millimeter film. So I'm still toying with what I'm going to do with the 35 millimeter negatives and slides. And so right now I'm playing with uh, a tethered high resolution digital camera and light boxes tethered to Lightroom to automatically do that. And I think that's probably where I'll end up, but I don't, I'm not there yet. Well, when you figure that out, will you post it in the forums with some pictures? Cause I think there'd be a lot of people that'd be interested to see how you, how you pull that off. Okay. I will do that. Uh, so, so once you have everything scanned or, you know, this ongoing process of adding new images to your library, how do you manage these files? I mean, what's the organization like for, for images that are, you know, this old and this, this numerous? So a couple hints and suggestions. Um, Lightroom, I mean, Lightroom does a lot in terms of image manipulation, but where I think it really excels is in image cataloging. So think about your file naming scheme. Think about how you're actually going to store your image files. So mine is a very long and complex scheme where I am following a museum standard if I have a resource group for each collection. And then I have information on uh, the resolution, the camera, if I know it, and all of that's in the file name, <laughs> as well as an individual image number, if you will. And so once I, I do that outside of Lightroom, because changing file names within Lightroom is painfully slow. So get that done outside of Lightroom or set up your presets so if you're tethered that the things come in with the proper name because changing them later is not fun. <laughs> right. I mean, Finder has some built-in renaming stuff and you can use Automator and these other tools. But if you're in Lightroom, like you said, it's not as easy. And I would imagine too that the time to do all of that is when you have it in your hand, right? When you actually have it out, it's on the scanner and you you don't have to go hunt it back down later because you forgot a detail or, or unsure. Exactly. And in Lightroom, because Lightroom is basically a database, it's not got the data in it. It's a pointer to your actual image file. If you change that image file name outside in Finder, Lightroom doesn't know where it is. So then you have to go relink them individually. Which is un unpleasant. <laughs> Painful. Yeah. Um, another thing is deciding on a controlled vocabulary. Lightroom's keywords and metadata are very powerful, but it's real easy to say, oh, you know, this is a picture of a dog, and then here's a picture of dogs with an S. And those are different to Lightroom. So you need to think through how you're going to keyword stuff so that you don't end up with a vocabulary where you've got multiple words for the same thing that you then can no longer search for easily. So are these keywords, are they based on, you mentioned location and camera. I mean, do you know, for instance, like who's actually in the images, if they're people, like how fine grain are you getting in that terminology? I'm doing it to um, Dublin Core standards, which is a 
standard for tracking metadata in historical documents. So as much information as we know, for some of these early 1900 things, we know the people that are in the pictures. So their names are keywords. We may know the location. We may know the year, the day, the date. We may only have circuit dates. So you have to figure out how you're going to do that. Um, we, we have the photographer in some cases, in some cases we don't. So in, in general, the rule with archive documentation is as much data as you've got, capture it. I continue to be impressed with the way you bring technology to bear to solve your problems, Uji. I have one other suggestion for anybody that's going to be tackling a large scanning project of personal data or personal images. Develop some process keywords in Lightroom that allow you to keep track of where you are with every image. So mine, I have needs keywords or needs web version or needs caption as keywords. And then I can use Lightroom's smart collections. So if I've got 20 minutes and I think I can just go make keyword a couple of images, I can pull up and say, okay, what are the ones that need keywords? Okay, let me look at that one. That one looks interesting. Let me see if I can keyword that one. And then when you've finished with that, you take that keyword off that image. And so you have this ongoing process so you can keep track. Because right now I've got about 30,000 images in my personal Lightroom catalog. Well, see, you do use tags. The, those, are, but they're very defined tags. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, but you, you know, I think there is a. I think there is something to be said though for having narrowly defined tags because then you can rely upon them. Yeah, tags. Tags to me are only useful if they're so carefully defined that you can never mistake one tag for another. And, and the system itself has to be able to call up those predefined tags yes. very easily. Like on, on Mac OS, uh, the Mac OS tags, which were added several years ago, but really the Apple hasn't done much with them. Uh, if you start typing a pre-existing tag, it autofills for you, which makes it very easy to apply them, which strangely they don't do on iOS at this point. It's on iOS. It's, it's madness. You have to scroll through a list, but the, um, but you know, this is a good example of where they work. Well, listen, uh, Uji, you, like I said, I'm so happy you were willing to come on the show and share some of this with us. I, I am fascinated about the way you do all these things. Where can people find you? So I've got a website out, uh, desertwear.com. That's the main farm website. And that's with a Y. Correct. W-E-Y-R, Desert Weir. There, there's two emails you can get a hold of me at, sales at desertwear.com or UGM at desertwear.com. We will be open for farm tours here in Paonia, Colorado, starting Memorial Day weekend. And we're open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 11 to 3-ish. So you can always just stop by. Um, If you want to come sometime other than those times, call or email if we're around no problem. I'm also on Twitter as UGM and the lambing will be tweeted. And I can guarantee you it's almost worth listening to, you know, watching Twitter just to see the pictures of the new cute little baby lambs as they come out. 
I bet it is. And also, you're very active over on the Mac Power Users forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com as yes, Uji. As, as Uji there. And if you're on the GTD Connect forums, I'm very active there as UGM. Well, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over on relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, like uh, we've been talking about on the show, we have a forum over at talk.macpowerusers.com. Uh, Stephen, where can people find you? I'm over at 512pixels.net, uh, where I just recently reviewed the 2018 MacBook Air. So if you're looking for a Mac notebook, maybe uh, check that out. Maybe helpful. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great review, by the way. Um, Thank you. At the um, And it, it really kind of opened my eyes to where that computer fit, because honestly, I wasn't really sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great little notebook. <laughs> and then I'm David Sparks. You can find me over at MacSparky.com. And uh, thanks to our sponsors. Clean my Mac X, Luna Display, and Smile, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>